This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon, entitled Fully Alive, The Call of Women, is by Catherine Ruck and is part three in the series. I had the privilege of growing up in Brazil, as I've said before, which in many ways is a matriarchal society. Women, especially mothers, have a lot of authority. This last summer I was talking to a surfer dude on the beach, and he was showing me his mother's name tattooed in large letters on his arm. He said he had missed a letter, but what are you going to (laughs) do? He said a lot of friends of his tattoo their mother's names on their arms. This was especially meaningful to him because his mother had adopted him. He gave me the guidelines the guys follow. Never tattoo any woman's name on your body except the names of your mom or your sister. This reverence for the mother is very refreshing. Teenage boys often walk with their arms around their mothers. My friends in Brazil will not move to a town that takes them away from their mothers. It's just simply understood. The beauty of this is that these mothers have sacrificed for their children and the culture lauds them for it. What follows is they have a lot of authority. Well, my mother fit in very well in this culture. She mothered anybody who came into her orbit. She taught the guard at the guardhouse not to urinate on the street. And she gave him paint, a bucket of paint, and said, paint your guardhouse. One of my favorite stories about her is the day she was walking down the street to the street market with her market bags, and a man held her up with a weapon and said, give me your money. Now, my mother believes in her authority as a mother, And once before, when gunmen had come into our house, she had said, this house belongs to Jesus. You can take whatever you want, but don't leave a mess. I hate messes. (laughs) So this young man didn't quite know what he was up against. She lifted her eyes and she looked into his. She put her hand on his shoulder and she said, in the name of Jesus, don't do this. And then she asked him what had led him to this low place. He began to share that he had lots of children to feed and no job. Well, what skills do you have, she said. I'm a baker, he said. Well, have you tried the bakery down the hill to see if they need someone? And so on went the conversation. Then she told him that she didn't have any money with her. She said, I'm going down to the market to cash a check at the end of the market. If you want, you can come with me, and I will give you some money, but you will not take it away from me. So he agreed, and he began walking beside her. Then he asked to carry her bags. And then he put his arm around her, like men tend to do in Brazil. As they walked through the market, vendors who all knew my mom looked in suspicion at this guy, and they made motions to help her, but she nodded that all was fine. After cashing her check and giving him some money, she wrote down some places he should pursue for a job, a church he should attend. She insisted he never rob anyone again, to which he agreed. Then she gave him her phone number, And she said, I want you to call me when you've pursued these leads because we've got to make sure you get a job. As she continued through the market, he kept following her. So finally, she turned around and she said, what do you want? And he said, can I go now? (laughs) Sometimes I try to imagine what that encounter would have been like if it had been a man who was held up instead of my mother. Suffice it to say, it would have been quite different. Today I want to talk about this gift that God has bestowed on the world when he made women. Unfortunately, not all see women 
as being an impartation from God. Since the fall, when God said one of the consequences would be that men would lord over women, men have often dismissed women, refused to acknowledge their contribution, made jokes about them, about being the lesser sex, objectified them by making them caricatures or idols or non-persons, misused them, not protected them, and even painfully sometimes abused them. The grief caused by this on a personal, cultural, societal, and even a global level has caused women to become isolated, self-protective, angry, and often deeply disconnected. Because of this, I know that when I stand up to talk about women, that probably many women on this, in this room are nervous. They're even afraid of what I might say, anxious, wondering if you'll be hurt again by a finger being put into an open sore. There are real reasons for that, real injuries. But I'm going to ask you today to stay present. Even if my articulation is imperfect, which it will be, because the person of woman is so elemental and beautiful, if we cannot engage even those ideas that frighten us, we may miss something of utmost gravity in our lives. And men, why should you listen to me today? Our identities as male and female are so linked that we cannot know ourselves without knowing the other. In the confusion that is surrounding women, you men are living in the loss of a broken womanhood and the tension that create, that creates in your own souls and in the world around you. So as we look up to God, may there be for all of us um, a blessing, a healing to seek to receive the, uh, uh, the gift the other has to bring. For many reasons, many of us agree today that woman is under threat. But I want to offer that culture, religion, government, the system, even man himself, who is not our en enemy. Not to say that man has not been used by our enemy or that women have not been used. The enemy, though, of woman is Satan himself. And his designs on her began in the garden. I want to look at why Satan might take such an interest in woman and particularly choose to target the value she brings to the world. A woman is not in danger because she is so weak, but because what she carries is so precious and dear. It is the meaning of half of the universe. And if we only respond, uh, we can only respond with a grave sense of responsibility to be true to what we've been given. If you are feeling an especially spiritually charged attack, it is because it is spiritually charged. But first I want us to pause and ask this question. When God created woman, what was his vision? What was his dream? What is the identity that we have been given from heaven? What is the eternal meaning that we are to convey to the world that cannot be carried by men? What is the genius with which we are to enliven the world? What is the beauty with which we're to grace the world? To answer these questions is a sobering task. To do so is to attempt to represent in words something that is too definite for words, something that's too cosmic for words. Womanhood is best captured in poetry, in art, in an embodied, real woman. How can I capture the love and strength of a woman such as my mother, 
who sat up all night feeding foster infants who had been put into her care by judges who asked her to take hard cases because they knew she could revive any child who was not thriving. How can I capture the selfless toil of Olivia Trotter, Victorian artist of utmost promise, who gave her life as a celibate to the mission God unfolded to her as an adventurer to Algeria, serving women and children and pioneering whole mission work to the Muslims? If we believe that God created man and woman, that it must follow that he had a purpose in making them. And if we believe that God's creation is very good, we can look and trust to him for revelation for the eternal meaning bound up in these two that he created in his own image. As we receive both the expansiveness and the limitations of that purpose, it follows that as we live in acceptance and in alignment with his purposes, we will find freedom and fruitfulness. If we do not live into God's design, we will live in a diminished world, in the small realm of the seen, shadows and suggestions, relying on the world to tell us who we should be. If we image God, it follows that there is something about the incarnational embodied revelation of God that will be diminished if we do not live into our femaleness and our maleness. It will be harder to know God in a culture in which the masculine and feminine are not united and distinct. So I want to go back to the beginning, to God creating. Woman is the final movement of creation, and God gave her two missions, to be a supernatural companion and to be a sacrificial mother. God made his creation in pairs, day and night, the waters above and the waters below, earth and sea, sun and moon, sea and sky creatures and beasts of the earth, and then man alone. Now God said it wasn't good for man to be alone, and he had a plan already to make us a helper suitable for him, but he wanted man to realize this himself. So he gave him all the animals to name, and during this time, he kept searching for that soulmate that had that same connection with the divine. Who knows how much time transpired, but he didn't find what he was looking for. So God made man a woman from the very body of Adam. Our connection to man is that intimate. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We came from the body of man, but from then on, man would always come from the woman's body. The connection is permanently established. We are that interdependent. If we look at the pairs God created, I think we can see in the realm of poetry the elemental distinctiveness in God's creation that brings a beautiful harmony to the workings of nature. We see in the moon what would seem a more hidden light as opposed to the sun, which shines brightly and is orbited by planets, providing light and warmth. But the moon is not simply a reflection of the sun. Its pull affects gravity and all the tides of the sea. In the oceans, we see the elemental movement of the unseen deep meeting at the solid rock of the shore, sometimes in a gorgeous cacophony of sound and spray sometimes in the soft lapping of water on sand. The two provide this meeting 
of beauty and strength. The created pair of man and woman are no less elemental and have been created with distinctions that are truly beautiful. These are not just in their biology, but in their thinking, their perceptions, their ways of relating to others, their processing of information, their appearance, their physical capacities. A man may be able to run a marathon faster, but no man is equipped in the marathon of birth, which studies say is about four marathons. Recent brain research has shown that there are a host of differences in the way men and women's brains are wired, giving each of them a set of strengths. In women's brains, there are more connections between both sides of the brain. In men, there are more connections between the front and the back. And these have all kinds of implications. Differences are meant to bring not a threat, but beauty and balance to the world. Gertrude von Lefort, the German philosopher and poet, speaks of the difference between man and woman as the difference between rock and water. Man signifies the eternal value of the moment, woman the unending sequence of the generations. Man is the rock on which the time rests, woman is the stream that bears them onward. Who could argue which is stronger? Water or rock? Water can actually even seep through rock over time. But they have elemental functions in the world, which are decidedly different and absolutely essential. Let's look at the first defining word God says of woman, a helper suitable for man. Now, the Hebrew word for helper is ezer, which is a word used many times for God in the Old Testament, such as Psalm 33:20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our Ezer. He is our help and our shield. Woman was to be an impartation from the presence of God that would minister God's help to Adam. This word implies that her help is providing something he cannot do for himself. Unfortunately, this was distorted in interpretation for so long, diminishing this help to be sort of the maker of his coffee or the one who makes his lunch. Though we should always seek to serve one another in the humblest means available to us and should never scorn the, acts, the small acts of love and kindness that bless one another, this interpretation does ignore the vast supernatural element to the help God was bringing in the person of woman. So the first call of woman is to be that supernatural companion. She is needed to carry half of the meaning of the world, to be the eyes that see what he cannot see, to be the ears that hear what he cannot hear, to bring what is missing, to be that presence that lifts aloneness, that establishes relationship. So how quickly that supernatural companionship disappears when man does not welcome that connection, that equal help, that difference that he so needs to complete him. When he reduces the help to the meeting of his physical needs or somehow simply that she's put there to serve his selfish desires. Man needs a revelation for the supernatural help a woman can bring when she walks in the spirit. She brings a perspective on the universe, a knowledge that she alone apprehends. She reminds him how to be, not simply how to act. And how quickly woman ceases to be that help 
when her focus becomes herself and her own needs, when she sees man as her competitor or she fears her help does not have visible influence. We live in a world of disconnection, of anxiety, of isolation, and of loneliness. I believe that some of this would be mitigated if we as women responded humbly to our mission to connect others, to be a relational help that fosters companionship and brings life. Women carry a God-given authority to help connect others to God and one another. When women understand the importance of supernatural companionship, they understand that it is more than friendship or just one-on-one relationship. It's the ability to create an ecosystem of connection. The dearth of the feminine in a community results in disconnection. When I was growing up, it was at a time in the evangelical church where women were just not given much room for ministry or leadership. But on the mission field, women flourished. And I think this is partly because men needed them. They helped plant churches. They led whole ministries, celibates, served on teams with couples. The community created was rich and intertwined with aunts and uncles everywhere and was mostly fostered by the women through hospitality and acts of service. How many times when we had been traveling, our fridge would be filled with food when we came home. We were in one another's homes all the time. An ecosystem of interdependency, love, and nurture was created. One celibate woman in our community had as her ministry simply to help all the missionaries with their paperwork and documentation, which is very bureaucratic in Brazil. And then she planned and led a conference for missionaries from all the denominations just to bring them together to pray, worship, and be fed spiritually. I believe that a lot of the success of missions in Brazil has been because of this unity among the missionaries. The church, the ultimate home, is always portrayed in scripture as the bride of Christ, a she. Women represent the home where all men and women can find community with God and one another. I see this relational difference even in my own boys and girls. When my girls get together to hang out, it's all about relating, with an activity being only the palette that creates the opportunity to connect. For my boys, it's all about the activity and eating really good, unhealthy snacks. (laughs) And if conversation happens, it's within the distraction of the activity. And I'd say, well, did you ask them about such and such? We were playing soccer. How was I going to do that? These are great differences, and they can be cherished and celebrated. I'm glad that our men in arms are not always distracted by relational troubles and sorting them out all the time, but they're focused on their common mission. But I'm also glad that women often help men go to deeper places of connection by being present to them and tethering them to relationships that ground them and keep them in community. Adam had to have Eve to image to the world to image God to the world. He had to have Eve to share his dominion of the world. He had to have Eve to be fruitful as it would take their mutual creative work to produce anything that went beyond their one generation. And this call to be fruitful and multiply is the directive God gave to all of creation. And he gives it specifically to man and woman. The vegetation was to produce more vegetation. The animals, more animals. The birds, more birds. And the people, more people. 
Women's role in the making of more people is strikingly different than the role of men in creating more people. It is an extension of her call to be a supernatural companion, as she will now connect the seed from man to her own egg. She will connect a child to herself and then to the world. Adam calls her Eve, which means living. Adam, though he is the father of all the living, is not called, like Eve is, the mother of all the living. Woman's second mission is to be a sacrificial mother. Now, I know Eve is called this, but it can seem restrictive because not all women will bear biological children. But this motherhood is so much broader than just the biological. It extends into the spiritual realm. And many women who do not bear biological children will come bearing a host of spiritual children. Our bodies tell us something, though, about this call. We as women are the only ones that house two, or sometimes more, souls at a time in our bodies. Every one of you had as your first home right under the heart of your mother. We cannot disparage God's design here. God desired that the human family begin in the care of a woman. When a woman carries a girl in her body, that unborn infant girl carries in her body the eggs she will have for her lifetime. This means that the mother is carrying the eggs that will form her own grandchildren. She is literally carrying the generations in her body. This is an awesome privilege to be the first to give and nurture the life of a new person. There's a particular, a particular connection with God in this work. Eve says when she gives birth to her first son, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Deep in our subconsciousness, we know that there's more to woman than simply a man with a different body, and we long for it. We live in a day when our culture has reduced even the archetype of woman to something so much less than its eternal reality. The body tells us more. The temporal realities have their meaning and their eternal realities. A woman's body speaks about her creational purpose, and it reveals something about the nature of woman. That is just as true for women who will never have biological children. In the creation of a child, she receives from man, and she builds something eternal with it. She alone is made to hold life, gestate it, shape it in secret, and then deliver to the world something completely new and different. This physical uh, symbol tells us something of a spiritual reality that bears itself out in the feminine way of being in the world. There's a gestational quality that women bring into relationship. The ability to receive something, such as an idea, incubate it, and return it to the world in a transformed state. This can happen in the workplace, it can happen in the home, in the vision to care for the poor. This is the story of women like Teresa of Calcutta, Dorothy Day in New York City, Mama Maggie of Egypt, Mama Gloria of Joss, Nigeria. This nurturing approach to the world is available to all women. But let's return to the question, why does the serpent come to Eve first? I do not believe that it was because she was weaker. 
I believe it was because she was mother of all future generations. If he could reach her, he could get to all humanity. She was most likely to be more receptive, open to another, responsive to his initiative. Satan was also most jealous of women. She had what he could never have, the capacity to create life when he can only destroy it or distort it. And certainly the most efficient way to come against Eve's creative purpose would be for him to persuade woman to turn upon this purpose herself with the idea that somehow giving life would diminish her own life. The temptation that Eve receives is the temptation behind most sin, that God is withholding something good from her. God had given them everything good. Whenever we grasp for what is not given, we move out of abundant life and death sets in. Satan will use anyone and anything to worm in to destroy humanity. He can get at Adam by removing the one sent to help him. Woman is a life source. From her will come all, come all people. If he can destroy her, he's destroyed whole lines of people. If he can diminish her, he will. And he will use anything at his disposal to do so, whether it's men, laws, cultural practices and postures, and even women themselves. We as women have to be aware of our own vulnerability to the temptation that something has been withheld from us. And we need to be especially aware of the ways the enemy moves in to convince us of an inverted truth, that the profound creational call to bear life into the world is actually the very thing that withholds us from a meaningful life. It is essential that you know what we have signed up for in our culture. When we begin, even as Christians, to separate the eternal meaning from the physical embodiment of that meaning, just this week, the journalist Elizabeth Harrington said that doctors working for the United Kingdom's government-run National Health Service are being told to stop calling pregnant women expectant mothers because it's not inclusive. It's not inclusive to biological women who identify as men. They said a change to remove the word mother is necessary because biological women who think they are men can get pregnant. Later in the article, it said that doctors should also avoid describing babies as being born man or born woman because those terms oversimplify a complex subject. Who are we afraid of offending? The 0.3% of the population that identify as transsexual and might want to have a child or the 100% of children who stand to lose the arms of a mother? This is reminiscent of Huxley's Brave New World, in which the term mother becomes an obscene word. Those who uphold the traditional fa family in our culture are strangely becoming the bigoted establishment that discriminates against diversity, even though the psychological establishment will whisper behind closed doors, it's still better for children to have both a mother and a father. But the children are the forgotten factor. Every child longs for the arms of a mother and the calling forth of a father, but the politics of the day does not consider children or even the next generation, for that matter, 
Its sights are set on an individual's self-realization in the here and now. What happens when we lose mother? Are we going to abandon the whole archetypal symbols that shape our psyches and create a whole symbolic system based on the exception? I will tell you what happens when we lose mother. I have prayed for many of these people. They live in extreme anxiety without a sense of well-being that a mother imparts. Years ago, I was approached by a young man whom I will call Ben. He was in his 20s at a conference. He had heard my talk and realized that a mother wound he had identified years before was still influencing his relationships with women. He described it as being a fundamental distrust of women, a defensive and a suspicious posture. This manifested in self-protection and distance. You're going to get close, but not too close. Does this sound familiar? His memories of his mother, who was a good mother, was that she was always busy and overwhelmed, that when he approached her for affection, her reaction was often to create distance with language such as, don't hang on me right now, or I'm busy right now. She was dizzy a lot, so she didn't want to be touched on her face. His desire for attention or simply to be held and acknowledged would regularly be denied, so he retreated emotionally. We prayed together that day. I asked God to show him a scene from his childhood and his imagination. He said he saw his mother at the sink, and he came up from behind her, seeking a connection. She brushed him off. And then I asked him, in your imagination, because Jesus is equipresent to every moment of our history, where is Jesus in the room? And he said, he's standing over by the dryer. And I said, what is he doing? And he said, he's opening his arms to me, and he has a big smile on his face. He described that he ran to Jesus, and it was in Jesus' embrace that he actually felt this incredible sense of well-being. He said that he thinks of that prayer time often, because I spoke to him very recently, and I asked him, what, what's happened since then? He said, even when I'm telling you this story again, I can feel the brush of Jesus' robe on my cheek. He said, I was able to get married. And now in my marriage, when I'm tempted to retreat in self-protection, because that is a common default for him, he said, I realize that what I need is the embrace of Jesus to stay present and connected. I tell you this story to show the loss or absence of mother connection and the wound it can leave behind can become a generational wound because it's so hard to give away what we have not received. It seems like something so intangible, but it's the gift of connection and a sacrifice of self to nurture another that builds in the child the capacity to do it for others. The good news is that Jesus can redeem these losses, though they are very real. That is why church as mother is supremely important. It is here that Ben found healing. It is here that one can find the healing for mother or father wounds. 
I think the greatest temptation for women in our culture is to grasp for influence. But we are first Christians, as you heard from the first sermon in our series. And the call for a Christian to have influence is to lose our lives for the sake of Christ. Jesus says that those who try to save their lives will actually lose them. But those who lose them for his sake will find them. I hear women talking about having it all, and I guess that means marriage, children, a successful career, a great education, financial financial security, and influence in their field. But having it all puts the emphasis in the wrong place. We are called instead to give it all. And Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. As women, we can sometimes feel that somebody's taking our life away. We have to not cooperate with the enemy, but come to a place of freedom where we say, I can lay my life down. I want to say here that there's naturally a way that women's call has with it more hiddenness than a man's call. This is something else we learn from the body. Shaping persons is often done in obscurity, if biological, in the complete hiddenness of her body, and then once outside her body, in the small, everyday tasks of serving another. This does not mean that woman does not have influence. In the world of God, influence is turned on its head. If you read this week the passages that are in your workbook, you'll see the Magnificat there. In the Song of Mary, God turns our human evaluations on their head. The humble are exalted. The hungry are filled with great things. The proud are scattered in the thoughts of their hearts. Mercy is for those who fear God, for he exalts the small who look to him in expectation. I am called to magnify God. In other words, to be someone who does not draw attention to myself, but whose life enlarges God. The call of women has a great possibility, if it is embraced, to be a journey of becoming less so Jesus can become more. Men have the same opportunity within their own call, because that is the call for all of us. The curse that came after the fall ended in hope. From the woman had come the first act of disobedience. From her would come the seed that saved the whole world. The early church fathers taught that as Jesus was the new Adam, Mary was the new Eve. She was given the chance of saying yes to God rather than no. Mary has been called the mother of God, for she was the first to carry God in her body. Jesus re-imaged man by coming as a man, and he re-imaged woman by coming through a woman. Woman's place in this redemption was outlined in the declaration that her seed would crush Satan's head, but he would bruise his heel. And this is seen vividly in Revelation, where Satan's anger against woman as a bearer of life, as a bearer of Jesus, is unleashed in hatred and violence. God's plan to restore woman through Jesus begins with Mary. Today we're offering out here small icon cards of a beautiful depiction of Mary blessing Eve. In the Magnificat, we hear the joy of Mary that now everyone will call her blessed. And I believe she speaks for all women. 
Mary was the first to receive Jesus in her body, paving the way for all of us, men and women, who would also receive Jesus into our bodies. But she particularly extends the blessings she received to all of us who have come under the sting of the curse as women. It is so easy to miss this exalted place that God has for women. Alice von Hildebrand says in her book, The Privilege of Being a Woman, as soon as we abandon a secularistic interpretation of the Bible, we can perceive that from a supernatural point of view, women are actually granted a privileged position in the economy of redemption. Receive today that mother's blessing visited on Mary that began the recreation of what was lost. The ministry of woman is individual, but is also so much more expansive than herself. It represents this impartation of God pictured in Mary and the church in both supernatural companionship and sacrificial motherhood. No matter how much tampering is done with the symbol, what it represents still remains. I was reminded of, the, of this in a story I read recently. We've heard of the idea that men call out to their mothers when they die on the battlefield. One soldier, Roland Bartetsko, reflected that for him it was even more than that. He said, when I was lying there on the ground under a hail of bullets, the word mother escaped my mouth. Just like that. It wasn't an exclamation or a cry for help. I just calmly uttered the word mother. At this moment, for the flash of a second, I thought, where did that come from? And then the thought passed away. I was too busy trying to survive. Later on, I had ample time to think about this moment and what I felt. This was an archaic moment, totally unconscious. And it came from some region of the brain that we don't have access to and under, which under normal circumstances lies hidden and suppressed. He said, I don't even think I was addressing or thinking of my mother as a particular person. I used to call my mother with her first name and not with mother or mom or something. But that the word mother referred to, referred to a more universal principle, the beginning of life. He said, our lives begin with our mothers giving birth to us. And on the day when I thought that my life was over, my mind circled back to where it had all begun. I want to challenge all men and women here today to allow God to search your hearts. Is there any way in which you are cooperating with Satan in his denigration of the call and mission of women? Is there any way, men, in which you have dismissed women? You have denigrated her. Is there any way, women, in which you have sought to be like men in order to be noticed or affirmed? Have you played to the lusts of men in the way you dress or post pictures of yourself, separating your body from your true personhood out of a desire to be noticed? Have you yourself diminished the contribution of motherhood as absolutely essential to the plan of God in carrying the generations who are rooted, carrying on generations who are rooted and established in love and personhood and being, and thought of some other contribution as being more influential? Or have you reduced motherhood to a secondary calling that does not really require your presence or your creative energy? 
Women, I would ask you practically to take up the mission of being that supernatural companion and helper that does not look to her own advancement, but to the flourishing of others. Here is a practical way. Stop bashing men. Pray for them. Support them. Encourage them. They are all your sons. And you want them to flourish. Just by your confidence, your modesty, your dignity, and your presence, insist on being engaged with as a real person, not as someone who will subjugate yourself to being treated as an object of lust or someone to be used. You have been made by God to be so much more for that than that for men. Also consider how you view your own call to sacrificial motherhood. If you are celibate or married and God has not given you children, be a mother within your sphere of influence. Live into the promises that you can have a host of spiritual children. Ask God to show you how to sacrifice that the next generation might have the riches they need to walk in truth and love, connected to God and others. Some of our greatest icons of motherhood are actually celibates, such as Mother Teresa. And if you are a mother of biological children, make a true assessment of the value that you've placed on this. Press into this call. Do not begin to think as soon as a child is born, how soon can I get away more? How soon will I be free? How soon can I make this one more independent so that I can do other things I want to do? Value this opportunity to be everything to a few. Consider honestly how much time your children have with you and how present you are to them when they are with you. And remember, your children need your education, your skills, but mostly your presence. And to you, young women whose lives stretch before you, do not let the lie of the enemy come to you that would say it is a small thing to be first a mother, that somehow your greatest contribution to the world would be outside of that. Don't make decisions now that preclude the possibility of living fully into sacrificial motherhood. Do not be deceived that you can somehow have it all and not lose something of supreme value. Whatever God gives you to do, do it as a woman. God created us with a purpose, and the way that that unfolds in the life of each woman here will be different. But if you are surrendered to God, it will bear the archetype, the symbol of woman, and what she is called to minister to the world as the supernatural companion and the sacrificial mother of all the living. May we be willing to submit to both the vastness of this vision that God has for us, as well as the limitations that shape us. We are not called to do it all. We are called to do the part God has ordained for us, and it is very good. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.